Uh, would you guys please stand with me? We're going to read uh, God's word together. We're going to be in Isaiah 42 today. So Isaiah 42, fix this, verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in this earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the, the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray for the preaching of it. God, thank you um, for the opportunity during this Advent season to dive into your word and to remember who you are. To remember that you are a God who is gentle and a God who is just. I pray that as we approach this passage today, you would be with us, your people. Uh, whether we enter today discouraged or excited in this season, God, would you meet us in our longing and remind us that you are a God of great love. Lord, as I preach this word today, would it be your spirit that would be at work? To all these things in your name, amen. You can be seated. So as you've seen in our liturgy today, uh, you may have grown up in a church where you guys celebrated Advent. Uh, you, this may be new to you, uh, but you see that this is actually the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a time where we as the church around the world celebrate and anticipate the coming of Jesus. We celebrate both his birth and we look forward to his promise that he's actually coming back. And so the question begs itself, why do we do this? Why does the church around the world celebrate Advent? Well, first we do this because there's something incredible to celebrate. See, we believe as Christians that God actually dwells with us. Christians believe that God became man in Jesus, and he came to live a perfect life and die on the cross so that we might be saved from the bondage of sin. See, we celebrate Advent because Jesus was birthed for a mission, and that mission is good news for us. But second, we observe Advent to remember our hope. That God's work on the cross is finished, but his work of making all things new is not yet complete. But it will be finished. We observe Advent to remember that he will come again. And it's only appropriate then to celebrate Advent as the winter solstice approaches. That's why we do it at this time of the year. December 21st is the winter solstice. And if you're unfamiliar with that, that's the shortest day of the year. There's the least daylight out of any day in the year. Uh, being from Florida, I have felt that intensely the past few weeks. Um, you guys may be used to that. But why we do this, um, because as the sun goes down earlier and earlier each day, we remember that more sun is actually coming. 
that amongst the darkest days of the year, God is still at work. And we long for the sun to come again. And today it's appropriate that we kick off the Advent season by looking at this first servant song in Isaiah 42. These songs were prophecies written to the Israelites who were people in exile, and they were written to remember their hope. They were written about the Messiah Jesus and his mission. And they were written for us so that we might know why he came and what he is doing. And in these prophecies, Jesus actually, we believe, discovers how he is to carry out his vocation as the Messiah. See, we know that Jesus is a student of the scriptures, and he many times in the Gospels quotes these songs when he talks to people about his vocation, about why he came and what he is doing. And so this is perfect for the Advent season because it reminds us what we celebrate and in whom is our hope. But more than this, I think we need to hear uh, who this servant is more than ever in this moment. See, whether we've been coming to church for a long time or this is our first Sunday, we often feel like what this passage will call a bruised reed or faintly burning wick. Some of us are weary. Our faith feels small like a mustard seed. Or maybe our pain feels large. We're filled with longing. And others of us want things to be made right. But we struggle to trust Jesus in this season with our past pain. And proclaiming that Jesus is our king may be difficult because we're actually joyfully inviting him to rule. Thomas Watson put it this way. He said, many would have Christ for their savior, but not their prince. Such as will not have Christ to be their king to rule over them shall never have his blood to save them. We want a king who can make things right, but we also want someone who isn't like human rulers or authority figures that have mistreated us or others. And what I want us to see in this passage is that Jesus, the Lord's chosen, is what our heart desires. As Tim Keller puts it, who uh, I will be referencing often, uh, he gets the result of a king, but he does not use the methods of a king. That's what Jesus does. He gets the results of a king, but he does not use the methods of the king. He is just, yet he is gentle. See, in Jesus is a great seeming incompatibility. He is of infinite greatness and infinite humility. And this infinite contradiction is the beauty of Christ, that we as Christians believe that the God of the universe loves the lowly, and he comes in graciousness and gentleness. And so today as we ask this question, who is this servant? I want us to look at two points, very simple. First, we're going to look at the gentleness of this servant, and second, we're going to look at the justice of this servant. But before we move there, we have to ask the question. Uh, it's a question that has been posed before. Is this servant a person, or is it a community? Uh, you know my answer. I've said it's Jesus, uh, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. This has been debated. Um, Israel has also been referred to in Scripture as the Lord's Chosen. And so people ask the question, is this Israel or is this Jesus? Uh, a professor I had in seminary is really helpful here. He says uh, he, that is Jesus, or the servant, sorry, is all that Israel should have been. But he's also a specific individual with a mission to Israel and beyond. He is the Lord's chosen. See, people interpreted this in the past as a community facing persecution rather than an individual, not because it makes sense in the context of the passage, but because it didn't make sense to them how this king could act in this way. How could this king filled with power be so gentle, so humble? How could he suffer? 
But this actually doesn't make sense in the context of the passage. Because the servant turns to the believing community, he turns the believing community back to God in verse 6 and 7. So the servant can't be the believing community because he as an individual turns them back to God. And we know this too because chapter 42, the passage we're looking at today, is an answer to the emptiness of looking to idle gods we see in chapter 41. See, now Isaiah is saying, don't look to them, look to Jesus. Look to this servant. And we know this even more because in the New Testament and the Gospels, this is directly quoted as referring to Jesus. That phrase you've heard before in Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, is a quote from Isaiah 42.1. And more than this, in Matthew 12, uh, this passage is, is quoted five verses of it to say that Jesus fulfills it. And so as we, the people look at this, the people of God look at this passage today, we see first and foremost who Jesus is, this gentle and just king. And we see the kind of community which we are being called to be as the followers of Christ. So this passage is about Jesus, and yet it also calls us, the people of God, to emulate this mission. So first point, the gentleness of the servant. It's really odd, isn't it, that, that God in his infinite wisdom chooses to describe Jesus as a servant. This is odd because great figures we know in history have great names. I think about uh, Ray and I have started watching this, this new fantasy series, which was a book called The Wheel of Time. And the, the person being prophesied in this book is called the dragon. Like talk about a name that commands power. I think about uh, the soccer team that I follow. They're linked with this player uh, in their defense. And this guy's name is called the Secretary of Defense. Like, talk about a name that commands respect. And yet, oddly, this king is a servant. That's the descriptor that is chosen. He's more humble than we can imagine. And we see uh, that in verse 1, that God's spirit has been put upon him. And he has so much power that it will, he will bring justice to the nations. But in verse 2, we see his humility in the three verbs describing him. The first verb, it says that he will not cry aloud. He will not cry aloud. This verb more, more woodenly means that which startles. He chose to not startle those around him by shouting or crying out. A commentator says, cry out indicates an attempt to dominate. Yet here, this king does not dominate. The second verb, it says he will not lift up his voice that is, he does not raise his voice in, in self-advertisement. We know these people, don't we? Those who speak loudly about themselves, who take every opportunity to, uh, to talk about their brand. It says that he will, not be, he will not make it heard in the streets. Keller here says he does not seek to control public discourse. He does not seek to control public discourse. See, this king gets the, the results of a king, but he does not use the methods of a king. He does not dominate. He does not speak loudly about himself. He does not seek to control public discourse. We know that he is truly great because he is actually truly humble. I think about this uh, in my, my classic use a Ted Lasso analogy. I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, there's a show called Ted Lasso, uh, and uh, the show really, I think, this is, this is Cam's hot takes, I think the central question of the show is, uh, what is greatness? 
That's my, my, my opinion, that the central question of the show is what is greatness? And it asks this in a number of different ways. Uh, the show's about a soccer team who's trying to succeed. And so it asks the question, what's greatness as a team? But it also asks this in the characters. What's great, who is great in this show? We know that in Ted, the main character of the show, we see a man who listens, who doesn't promote himself, who doesn't seek to control the media or fans' opinions of him as lies are spread about who he is and what he's doing. Whereas another character named Nate, who literally Ted calls Nate the Great, we see it all in his statement at the end of season two, where Nate goes to Ted and he says, everybody loves you, the great Ted Lasso. Well, I think you're a joke. Without me, you wouldn't have won a single match. You don't belong here, but I do. And yet what's shocking is that in this show, in Ted's humility, he actually becomes greater in our eyes. That he, this coach, becomes greater. We know that those who are great and humble are even greater. It's like meeting a celebrity and them actually being a normal person. I don't know about you, but that makes me think that they're greater. This is a dim echo of Jesus in certain ways. As we look to him and we see his humility, we're perplexed by this God who becomes a servant. And we see Jesus' gentleness even more in verse 3, where it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And so what does it mean to be bruised? Well, being bruised is more than just having, you know, a, uh, a, a gray spot that kind of hurts to the touch. See, the word bruised here, as Keller notes, is actually a deep contusion that has either injured or destroyed a vital organ. It's a death blow. It maybe doesn't show on the surface, but inside you're dying. That's what it means to be bruised. For a reed to be bruised, it means that it's no longer usable in the harvest. It's actually impossible to be restored. And yet, as one commentator puts, this servant, to him, nothing is useless. Even the bruised reed, which is useless as, as a support or for anything else. Neither is anything like a smoldering wick too far gone toward extinction. Nothing is useless. Nothing is too far gone. And so what we know about this servant is that he loves the brokenhearted. He's attracted to hopeless cases. He can heal what can't be fixed. He treats each of us individually with such gentle care, and he will not break us. That's what we see here. Just look at how he treats the prostitute at the dinner party in Luke 7. This woman who anoints his feet with perfume and her tears. She is a bruised reed, breaking inside and despised by the men in her presence, who say to Jesus, if you were a prophet, you would know who this woman was and not associate with her. And yet Jesus, the servant who does not break bruised reeds, says to her, your sins which are many are forgiven. Because you have loved much. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace, daughter. This is a God who does not break bruised reeds. There's a writer and, and pastor named Richard Sibbs, and he wrote uh, a sermon called The Bruised Reed and the Smoking Flax. Listen to his words about Jesus. Consider the names he has borrowed from the mildest creatures, such as lamb and hen, to show his tender care. 
Consider his very name, Jesus, as Savior given him by God himself. At his baptism, the Holy Ghost rested on him in the shape of a dove to show that he should be a dove, like uh, a dove-like gentle mediator. See his invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, in Matthew 11. How did his heart yearn when he saw the people as sheep having no shepherd, in Matthew 9. He never turned any back again that came to him, though some went away of themselves. He is a physician, good at all diseases, especially at the binding up of a broken heart. He died that he might heal our souls with a medicine of his own blood, and by that death, save us. Never fear to go to God, he says. This is the conclusion. Never fear to go to God, since we have such a mediator with him, who is not only our friend, but our brother and our husband. Let this support us when we feel ourselves bruised. He says something quite profound. He ends with, if Christ be so merciful as not to break me, I will not break myself by despair. If Christ be so merciful as to not break me, I will not break myself by despair. And so what does it mean as the church to follow this gentle and humble servant? Well, I'll ask you a question. Are we as people being shaped in the image of this servant? Are we searching for power or is the gospel creating humility in us? Henry Nouwen writes this, he said, What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that, the is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Are we committing ourselves to the harder task of love? How are we treating the weakest reeds among us? Are we patient with them? Are we patient with ourselves? If Christ never breaks the weakest reed, then we should not break ourselves or anyone else either. The Christian life is not about becoming greater, but it's about following the one who is great. This is what the church is meant to be, a community who gently cares for bruised reeds. Yet we repent that sometimes churches have embodied a different kind of mission that is obsessed with relevance or is obsessed with power. And yet what we see here is that the mission and vocation of Jesus is one of gentle care. See, the servant songs are how Jesus discovered his purpose. And so let's discover it there as well. So we see the gentleness of this servant, but second we see the justice of this servant. So the just servant is actually a king. See, a king's job is to bring justice. That is to make everything right. That's what the king's job is. It's to protect his people. And it's, we see in verse 6 that the servant will serve as a covenant in the sense of being a covenant representative like David. And so Jesus is actually uh, the Messiah. He's the one who fulfills this Davidic covenant. See, the servant will be a covenant, the means through whom people will come into relationship with the Lord. This is the message that he's spreading. He's a king. And we see that in verses 1 through 3, or sorry, one and three, that he will bring forth justice. And this word justice here is the Hebrew word mishpat. Often this word refers to a judicial sense of justice. So what I mean by that is that someone did something wrong and justice is holding them accountable. So often this word refers to a judicial sense of justice. It's righting wrongs and sentencing the guilty. 
But here, as noted by one commentator, it is the establishment of a just order. It's the establishment of a just order. Keller puts it this way. He says, uh, the, word more gen- the word is more general than rectifying justice, which he's referring there to judicial justice. It's about the kind of society where rectifying justice isn't necessary anymore. It's where everything is already right. And so we see in Jesus that he is a healing king. The just servant is a healing king. Jesus is coming not just to deal with bruised hearts, but to heal everything that is wrong in the world. He actually promises to make a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus certainly refers to himself at other places in the New Testament as a judge. He doesn't not do rectifying justice, but here he is talking about a greater sense of justice. Remember that Jesus is a student of the scripture. He looks to these servant songs as a place to understand his vocation. And what we see in the first point is that Jesus' vocation is to gently restore bruised reeds like us and to right relationship with him. And here we also see that his mission is also bigger, that he's making everything right. And that's why we anticipate at Advent that Jesus is coming back. That's why we look toward the second coming. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, this story really starts in Genesis 3. It really starts in Genesis 1, but we're going to start in Genesis 3. And what happens in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they sin. And that ruins their relationship with God. But what we see is that more than just their relationship with God is ruined. Remember, God's come to restore that in his gentleness. But, but they also see that they have a broken relationship with themselves. They feel shame. They feel guilt. They hide. They have a broken relationship with one another. They blame each other. They have a broken relationship with the world. That work becomes toil. And what we see here in Jesus' mission is that he is restoring peace. He's restoring shalom. The justice which he brings is more than just rectifying justice because he is healing all relationships in such a way where nothing needs to be rectified again. He's establishing an order where everything is right. A professor of mine uh, in, in seminary tells a story Uh, it's about this older lady in his church, this wise older woman who he had been um, caring for during her cancer treatment. And so he was at her, her bed and, and, uh, it was, the prognosis was said where she probably only had a couple of weeks. And this pastor, uh, rightfully was, was, was weeping with her. He loved her greatly and he was really sad, which was very appropriate. And yet she said these words to him. She said, Pastor, healing would be wonderful, but healing is in heaven. Healing would be wonderful, but healing is in heaven. Physical healing would be great, just like rectifying justice is still a good thing, but it would not put her body in a place where it could never get sick again. Being with Jesus would do that. What's amazing as we look at this justice that the servant is giving is that he is establishing an order where we'll never be sick again, where our relationships will never be broken again. He's giving us something greater. But you may be asking, how does he bring this justice without using the methods of the king? How does he do this? How does he bring healing and gentleness? Well, we see this because the just servant is a suffering king. We'll talk more about this uh, when we get to Isaiah 53. But we see in verse 4 that he will not grow faint 
or be discouraged. Uh, one commentator uh, says the intention is not to say that the servant will be immune from suffering, but only that the pressure and blows that immobilize others will not deter him. We'll see in greater detail what this means once again in Isaiah 53, but later in the servant songs, it says that he was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. And what I want us to see today is that Jesus not only loved us bruised reeds so much that he will not break us, but he loved us so much that he was bruised for us. He loved us so much that he was bruised for us. There's this part of scripture just following Genesis 3, which I talked about, called the, the Proto-Evangelium. And what that means is the first gospel. It's in Genesis 3.15. And it goes like this. It's this little, almost seemingly hidden part of scripture. So man, man and woman has fallen from God. They're in conversation with him. And uh, God talks to them about what's going to happen but then he turns to the snake, the one who attempted him, who's Satan. And he actually speaks to the snake and he says these words, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This almost seemingly hidden part of scripture. What does that mean? Well, as you know, uh, well, as, as I think, snakes are terrifying. Uh, and uh, if you have ever come face to face with a snake who is dangerous, uh, you know that, um, uh, so I, I'm from Florida and we had snakes in our gardens all the time. And if you were to kill it with a shovel, it still lives for a while. In fact, it'll lash out. And what's being said here is that if you're with a friend and you want to save his or her life by stepping on the head of the serpent, it will still bite you. That's what Jesus does. He crushes evil. He, he takes our our deserved judgment, and yet he is bruised. The snake fights back. He died for us. He took the cost. We serve a servant who actually took rest rectifying justice so that we could have this better justice. That's why Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds you are healed. He suffered to give us lasting justice. And so what does this mean? It means that we need to be a church that cares about what Jesus cares about. It means being gentle with and even willing to suffer for the sake of bruised reeds. It means spreading the good news of what Jesus has done and is doing. But it also means doing justice in the city using Jesus' methods. And what that means is that we probably won't be popular. Because conservatives will look to us and accuse us of making trouble. And liberals will look to us and accuse us of not using enough means to get justice. This is a different kind of justice. And as we endure these short days the next few weeks of Advent, remember that Jesus is bringing real justice. He's returning. He's making all things right. This is what we long for. And so as we conclude, um, I really have one plea, and that, that's this. Um, put yourself under this king's care. Some of us here today may have never put yourself under God's care before. Or you might be struggling to come back to Jesus after past pain. Henry Nouwen says this, The farther I run away from the place where God dwells, the less I am able to hear the voice that calls me the beloved. And the less I hear that voice the more entangled I become in the manipulations and power games of the world. 
In verse 1, the father says to this servant Jesus, you are my delight. And do you know that because of the work of Jesus, God actually delights in you as well? That those are his words, that you are his beloved sons and daughters. He is gentle and just. He gives us exactly what we need. To Thomas in the gospel, he gives touch when he doubts. To Peter, mourning the death of his friend, he gives a meal on the beach. Some of us need to know that we can tell him of our sin and that he won't run away from us, that he can take it, that we won't get canceled, whatever it is. Others of us need to be shown that we need God and he might uh, put hard circumstances in our life to help us see that, but he will not break us. Whatever you need, let's put ourselves under his care, this gentle and this just king.